0: There is no such thing as a typical day for a homicide detective. At the Orlando Police Department in 2006, when Jennifer Kessie disappeared, Sergeant Rich Ring, supervisor of the homicide unit, started his day early. He'd awake each morning at 5 a.m., fix himself two cups of coffee, catch the local headlines, and lift some weights at the gym, before reporting to headquarters in the downtown district. There, He'd log on to his computer inside a tiny, barren, windowless office and carefully review each and every case update within his purview. Office hours for Rich were usually between 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. But when a murder occurs, it's not typically during working business hours. Rich was on call 24 7 and directing the six detectives working under him. Much has been said about the early stages of the police investigation into the disappearance of Jennifer the apparent missteps that were made and the leads that were never thoroughly investigated or at all. But you'd be hard pressed to say that Rich Ring, a 25 year veteran of the force, didn't do everything he could with the resources he had to help find Jennifer. Rich is now retired from the Orlando Police Department. This is his story.
1: I'll tell you that I frequently think about the case. I'll be the first person to tell people uh, when they ask me about the case. Um, what a disappointment it was that we weren't able to solve it for Joyce and Drew and Logan. I will tell you that never, ever, ever one time did my chief of police, my captain, anybody in charge of me say, you're spending too much time on this case. Move on. You've got other things to do. Those words were never spoken. This was an open checkbook kind of case. Uh, We worked it As though, like I said, like it was one of our family members that was missing. And that is what you should be able to draw from what you read when you look through that case file. That year was the Orlando Police Department's darkest year in terms of homicides. We had 49 homicides that we were investigating. And when I had my team, I had a team of six detectives. So we had 49 homicides in addition to the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie.
0: Take us back to that night. What were you doing when you got the call?
1: I've got the first phone call. I believe it was on the night of uh, January 24th. Basically, I had a fellow sergeant, uh, Roger Brennan, called me and told me he was on call. And he called to say, hey, we've got a missing person and uh, started talking to me about the case. He was very concerned there was a lot of attention the family brought immediately to this because of jennifer's the way she uh, handled herself and the fact that she was always in contact with her family
0: when did you show up to the mosaic was it the night of the 24th
1: actually i had knee surgery and uh, was out for the first week of the investigation i was a homicide supervisor but i had an acting squad leader that was acting in my absence that i spoke to prior to my knee surgery about this particular case, and basically the two most uh, senior and experienced detectives were assigned the case.
0: One of the most frustrating parts of this case is the simple fact that not everyone agreed Jennifer was in grave danger on January twenty fourth, 2006, the day she was reported missing. As soon as the Kessie family learned she failed to show up for work, they knew something was seriously wrong. But the officers who responded to the call that day didn't initially act like there was a crime scene. Jennifer was an adult after all, and living on her own. This conflict is unfortunately not unique to the Jennifer Kesey case. I think back to the disappearances of other young adults whose families pleaded with police to act with urgency. As parents, they knew intuitively their child's life was in peril. But the cops responded differently, Rich explains this quandary to me from a law enforcement perspective. What are some of the challenges for law enforcement when it comes to looking for missing persons?
1: There's this notion that people you know, are free to leave and go and come and they, they, they can do things that are unexpected from time to time and families not expecting it. I think there's a little bit in the very beginning, there was probably in this case too, uh, the feeling that perhaps Jennifer you know, maybe had an argument with with her boyfriend, uh, was out of touch because she was upset with a family member. So there, there was, you know, the initial sense is that things will work themselves out. Of course, in this case, they didn't.
0: When Jennifer's black Chevy Malibu was found abandoned two days later and with no trace of her, it was clear to police that foul play was involved.
1: There was an urgency in the criminal investigations division. There were detectives from all parts of the agency not just homicide not just assault and battery but the folks from auto theft the folks from economic crimes it was an all hands on deck uh, approach and it had been established by Glenn Goss who was my acting supervisor he was kind of the point person for it the car was presented about itself about a mile or so away from the apartment complex Of course, anytime there's a a discovery like that, there's evidence that the vehicle was immediately seized and taken to an indoor storage facility to where it could be held and processed by Orlando Police Department Crime Scene Technicians. So the fact that we found the car was a positive uh, for the agency initially, because, you know, there's always the hope that there's going to be some type of indicators found within the car, on the car. That would help the investigation try to kind of guide us in a direction that needs to be taken.
0: We'll continue with our story after this short break.
2: New from the Fox News Podcasts Network.
0: My name is Kennedy and welcome to my podcast, which will I humbly say single-handedly save the world. You're welcome.
2: It's Kennedy saves the world. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Baier podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Police initially believed Jennifer disappeared on the night of January 23rd based on faulty cell phone data that showed her phone pinged off several towers that night. But later, the correct cell phone data showed Jennifer never left her apartment on the night of the 23rd. Police then changed their working theory.
1: It was believed that uh, Jennifer had left, presumably to work, and that some place between the time she left her apartment and the time she would have gotten to work, uh, that she disappeared.
0: I read some of the excerpts of the police records, you know, which the family obtained and shared with me. And in there... It says that when police arrived at Huntington on the Green and they assessed the car, examined the car just you know with the naked eye, the hood of the car appeared that the sort of thin film of dirt or dust on the hood of the car was disturbed, and it and they they made a note that it looked like perhaps there could have been a struggle on the hood of the car.
1: That was very apparent to the investigators that were on scene, especially the experienced investigators, that. It appeared as that there was a struggle of some type. We're not sure whether it was Jennifer or who, but we kind of we kind of assumed that it, it could have been Jennifer and her assailant struggling on the hood of the car.
0: Was the car the crime scene?
1: There's multiple crime scenes in, in any kind of investigation. The car was, was one. It was probably the best jumping off point as far as the collection of evidence because that is identified to her. We did find it so close to her condo.
0: The next big find for Orlando police was the black and white surveillance video showing an unknown person parking Jennifer's car at an apartment complex called Huntington on the Green, about one mile from Jennifer's condo. Despite Rich's best efforts, it was impossible for police to identify the mystery person, whose face was obstructed by a fence post in every shot.
1: I I don't think I've ever seen a situation where a criminal act has taken place and the criminal actor is given the benefit of having uh, obstructions block their face so that they can't be identified.
0: We all have looked at this over and over and over again trying to find some new clue or some detail we didn't catch before. Everybody seems to see things a little bit differently. You know, some people think that his hair is tucked under a cap, others think it is in some kind of man bun. And and then there are other people who think that he might have an earring in his right ear. What are some observations that you that you made when you when you saw that figure on the footage?
1: We could see what we believed to be a male. There was What I thought was a distinct haircut. We could see him walking, we could see his gait, we could see his shoes, we could see his haircut. We could guesstimate how tall he was, uh, but we could not see the person's face, which would have been uh, a game-changing event.
0: Orlando police went to great lengths to enhance the surveillance video.
1: We were not satisfied with the resolution of the video. We took the video to NASA in the middle of the night. Spent the entire night with NASA at their photo labs trying to get uh, more information from the uh, video than we had or that we could see at the time we were viewing the video at the police department. We invited a specialist from the Federal Bureau of Investigation to come out and help us. And they, they were on scene uh, in the exact location using the exact light, exactly the way the camera was positioned. And they extrapolated the fact that the person they believe was between five foot three and five foot five inches. They took into account the, the camera angle, they took into account the distance. I know there were a, a bunch of mathematical calculations. That they used to arrive at those numbers, so it wasn't like an arbitrary. You know, we're between five three and six foot. Uh, they were very specific. This person appeared to be a shorter uh, person.
0: When he pulls into the lot, he he stays in the car for thirty two seconds, I think, before exiting. Any thoughts on that? What he might have been doing?
1: Perhaps wiping the car down a little bit. I mean, that that's that's typical mo for people when they they steal cars or. Uh, they're on something they're not supposed to be in. They'll they'll wipe the vehicle down. He could have been making sure that nobody was watching him.
0: The Orlando Police Department did not immediately release images of the person of interest to the public, a decision that was later fiercely criticized by the Cassie family and those in the media.
1: When we, we found the video, that was my first day back. And We found the person of interest, and that's what we called that person. It was apparent that it was going to be challenging for anybody uh, to identify the person Unless you know, I, I use this, this this standard phrase. The suspect would know that it was him, or the person of interest would know that it was him. It'd be very difficult for anybody uh, outside of that circle to derive an identification from that particular set of photographs. As it'd be best to re- release the best footage you have so there was a, a a slight delay there not in the investigation because the the police uh, had that information they were looking in that area for people that were uh, you know any, anything that could match and whether it was the clothes the hairstyle the height the uh, build uh, there was there was a search for any any persons in that area of texas and americana
0: Rich explains to me why they did not release the entire video.
1: We did not release the entire video because we did not want the person to know that we had actual video of them leaving the car. And we framed it uh, so that we didn't make the person, in case this was just an an accomplice or just an accessory after the fact, we didn't want them to feel like the police had him and we're going to try to pin the disappearance of Jennifer on him. Uh, So we we kept that uh, to ourselves for a few months until we just finally determined that it would be best to just go ahead and release the entire uh, video footage and if we were to find the person of interest, uh, they, they, of course, would be an immediate suspect in the disappearance of Jennifer. It is in the, the police's best interest to make sure that you have information that you hold back so that you can help your interview. Because in, in a case like this, it's it, it may take an interview and a very good interview to get a confession or get an admission or get information that can help you solve the case. So you never ever want to release information uh, or too much information because uh, it can hurt you when it comes when it comes time for an interview.
0: Let's talk about the canine assets that were brought in. It's my understanding that on the 26th there were some police dogs that traced a scent from the car all the way back to the mosaic what can you tell us?
1: I, I will tell you is that the dogs are trained. In that case, I, I believe it was a bloodhound from the Orange County Sheriff's Office. They're trained particularly how to uh, search for scent. You cannot determine whether it was the scent of uh, Jennifer that they were following or the scent of the person of interest that they were following back to the complex. Take that into calculations. You try to use that in the framework that is intended. It's not going to solve your case to say you're not going to be able to say specifically that the the person went that direction. You can say that based on the dog's behavior, you believe that the person, a person uh, related to the car traveled to the Mosaic condo complex.
0: So the car was found. Nothing appeared to be stolen from the car. I think there was a DVD player sitting in the back seat. Jen's bank cards, nothing had been used. What are your thoughts about the motive of this crime?
1: This wasn't a robbery. To speculate what, how it started or what the motive, actual motive initially was, would be just that. It would be speculation you do a lot of thinking about uh, what could have caused us, what would have motivated somebody to to take Jennifer and park her car and uh, the the things that we found in the investigation. But again, it's all speculation because if you had facts about what happened, you'd be able to more clearly investigate what was at hand.
0: Were any of the workers or neighbors at Jennifer's condominium complex investigated or considered as suspects? Were they interviewed by police?
1: There were numerous interviews uh, conducted at the Mosaics. A lot of the focus, of course, was circled around their transient workforce—the the painters, the, the construction people—and there was a lot of, of, of focus on that. There was a lot of there were comments that, and we actually interviewed people who talked about. Workers at the complex and behaviors, and we investigated all those as much as we possibly could. I, I think the investigation revealed the fact that there was a pattern of misbehavior by the workers, not just by Jennifer's conversations with her fathers, but I actually sp- spoke to to a uh, person who uh, moved from the complex because she had been taunted and teased in, you know, sexual innuendos by some of the workers at the complex.
0: Rich then talked to me about Chino and Ben, two of the maintenance workers at Mosaic who we mentioned in Episode 4. The pair had been painting in Jennifer's condo about a week before she disappeared. As I mentioned before, we're identifying them only by their nicknames. They have never been publicly named persons of interest or suspects in Jennifer's case.
1: What I'll tell you is that they were investigated. A very capable detective, Detective Joel Wright, followed that lead down to the nth degree. I don't I don't want to get into polygraphs and statements and all that kind of stuff because I don't think any person at this stage in the investigation would be eliminated as a possible suspect. But that particular uh, lead was investigated uh, and it is part of the case file as to what was done. So I'll leave that at that.
0: Were there any other people that police were carefully looking at outside of Mosaic?
1: During my time, there were two or three persons of interest that we uh, looked at and we investigated thoroughly. Some very promising, some were just you know derived from tips with loose information. At, at points, there were th- times when we felt like we were going to get a break and we were going to find a person that was responsible and any chance we had to talk to people or to investigate, you know, get solid reason to investigate, we did. There were a couple people that we spent probably hundreds and hundreds of man hours looking at. Unfortunately, we, we could not uh, get enough to, to make a case or to help find Jennifer wherever she was.
0: I was wondering if you could talk about the obstacles that law enforcement faced in this case. There's two that definitely come to mind for me. Uh, One being the fact that there was no surveillance footage at Mosaic. There were no cameras at the time Jennifer disappeared. And the other I think of all the time is the fact that there were all these transient workers, that you had people employed by the Mosaic, but you also had subcontractors.
1: One large obstacle was our decision regarding the video, because... You know, the minute you do that, people that are involved, if they were calm at that particular point, uh, they're no longer calm. So that has a chilling effect on people that are involved in crime, especially something as, as serious as an, an abduction. In hindsight, 2020, you look back at that uh, particular time when we released the video, there was there was obvious movement Uh from workers at the mosaic, they were they kind of uh, felt that it would be in their best interest to leave, and, and not all of it's because they were involved in the abduction, but because uh, probably a p- percentage of them, I don't know what it is, were probably not in the country as as documented workers, and they were fearful of being detained or or sent back to wherever they were from. So that that was one challenge. So the 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 flight. Alarmed flight of possible suspects, it makes you hard to find them when they, when they take off and you don't even know who they are. The video, the lack of video at the apartment complex or at Jen's complex created problems. The, the antiquated video at the Huntington on the Green created problems. And, you know, I, I'd speculate that in today's video environment that the persons responsible for this would not have been so lucky have had that the technology that we have today been around, so we had to struggle with that. And you know, there was there was some consternation with with, with regards to to the telephone. There were some thoughts that perhaps Jennifer had left the apartment complex, and that was driven by cell phone data. So that those were probably the three big uh, challenges we had.
0: That, that's right. There was like a cell phone study done that indicated that Jennifer had been out driving around on the night of the 23rd, and that was later proven to be incorrect. But I understand what you're saying about the technology of that time.
1: The technology was not nearly as advanced as it is now as far as locating uh, cell phones. We're basing a lot of decisions in the investigation on cell phone towers, locate how far the pings were from the cell phone towers, Whereas today, uh, we would not only get a position uh, of the last location of the phone, we would be able to tell if they were in a first, second, or third floor apartment. We had the information in front of us and the experts that we relied on, and based on the information that they gave us, when we could not ignore it.
0: I then asked Rich for his thoughts on all the criticism out there about the police handling of Jennifer's case. Rich is an experienced homicide detective. But he's also a parent, and I could hear the father in his voice.
1: We worked every and and you'll 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 find this with homicide detectives. They work their, the case like it's a member of their family that was murdered. I remember seeing my detectives dragging in every morning during that investigation because you know they were sleep deprived. You know, I might get a little emotional, but I, I get kind of mad when I hear people naysayers uh, about the amount of work that was done in this particular case because I, I i can't even quantify or begin to quantify the thousands upon thousands of man hours that went in to trying to find jennifer uh, and and we're, we're not we're not boastful about that because we didn't we didn't achieve the objective we didn't find her but I'm, I'm not going to apologize, and I don't think the Orlando Police Department should have to apologize for the amount of work and effort that they that they put into the case investigation. Were there things that, you know, in hindsight in 2020 and that, you know, looking back 14 years ago that we could have done differently, I think you can say that about any case, even successful cases. So to the naysayers out there, until you've walked in the shoes of a homicide detective, that is being pulled in 15 million directions, trying to bring resolution not to one family, but to multiple families, I think it'd be best for you just to kind of keep your opinions to yourself when it comes to that. All that said, nobody has the right, in my opinion, to take somebody's life, and we we took every one of those investigations very seriously. Uh, and we worked hard to find resolution uh, for, as many people as we possibly could. So uh, it, it shows you how hard we work. And, and and we worked hard on Jennifer's case. You know, even though Jennifer's case was, and I think it's still, it may be labeled a missing persons case to this date, but uh, we didn't treat it like one. We treated it like she was a member of our family and we wanted to find her. This particular case, um, when I look back at my career, is uh, probably the. Um, I need to pause for a second. It, it's, it, it, it was a disappointment uh, uh, that we didn't uh, get resolution for Drew and Joyce and Logan.
0: Nearly 15 years after Jennifer Kessie vanished from Orlando, leaving investigators stumped and the trail cold, Rich has hope the case will one day be solved.
1: Don't ever, ever ever give up hope on a case like this because there is always the possibility that somebody's going to make a mistake. They're going to talk to somebody and say something they shouldn't. Um, And the police will get information and then that'll lead to an arrest. I've seen cold cases solved. I was involved in one that was almost 20 years old. Um, It just takes the right a person at the right time and I think that's what uh, Drew and Joyce continue to hold uh, hope out for is that somebody one day is going to grow a conscience and that that conscience is going to bother them so much to know that they held information back in a case that prevented a family from getting closure. That person, when they realize the, the, their humanity, uh, may say something to the right person, and that person may say something to the police.
0: I just want to expand on that a little bit. Rich, speaking directly to a person or persons who, who might be listening to this podcast, who knows something, what is your message to them?
1: It would be hard for somebody to get away with this by themselves. So somebody out there wasn't just an assistant and somebody out there probably didn't want to participate in an act like this and they got caught up in it. I would say to that person, there's going to be a day of reckoning. And when that day comes, are you going to be comfortable that you're going to be able to sit there and look at your maker and say, I did nothing in this particular case because I wanted to protect my friend or I felt like I needed to protect myself? The time for that is well, 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 well past. We're all getting older. You're you're not going to live forever. And one day you're going to be held accountable. It's about time, uh, 14 years after the fact, for you to become responsible and do something about this.
0: In the next episode of House of Broken Dreams, a woman speaks to us about something suspicious she saw at a nearby lake in 2006 the same year Jennifer Kessie went missing.
2: A gentleman got out of the truck, looked around very
1: cautiously, and took from the back of the truck a big carpet. He picked the carpet up and threw it over you know, his arms and took it to the side of the lake and threw it in.
2: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.